Hello and welcome to Matters of Experience. My name is Abigail Honor. And I'm Brenda Cowan. Brenda, I'm really looking forward to today's podcast because it's one of those things that seems so obvious, especially in what we do. But whenever you bring together a team or work with teams, there's always an ego or two lurking. Or four or five or, <laughs> yeah. And dealing with these personalities so that the group can work harmoniously is critical, but sometimes difficult, and it can make or break a project. And I've seen other vendors or the client be the culprit who wants to dominate and assert themselves in meetings. So coming up with ways to handle and manage these people is necessary, and so is knowing when to throw the towel in and part ways. The first thing that's clear is if you want to work in the exhibition or experience design profession, you need to enjoy working with others. You have to play well. We're not artists who work alone and then presto, we appear with all the answers in a ready-to-build design set. We need designers, engineers, architects, modelers, fabricators, AV integrators. There is a huge cast of colorful characters involved and they all have to have patience and respect to make a project truly unbelievable. I couldn't agree more that we don't enter into this thinking that we're fine artists. And I'll also say that you have to have an ego in order to be in this business. But there's a big difference between behaving poorly, but having the right kind of healthy ego where you can make decisions, put out suggestions, or even push back against an idea. And oftentimes clients kind of expect you to be like that. A client will say, okay, ready, set, go, come up with all of the answers. And that's not collaboration. That's not teamwork. And the design firm's job, I believe, it, is to really sort of help educate the client oftentimes anyway, not always, but oftentimes, that we are going to work together, which means that you are going to be valued and we need you to participate and we need you not to expect us to have all of the right answers right from the gate. It's really difficult to do what we do. It's hard enough to create. It's hard enough to work together and egos just block it everywhere. It can't be one person's vision. I think another way of really thinking about this is the idea of knowing who you are, knowing how you individually, personally work the best. What is it that makes you really great at what you do? And then being able to allow for and recognize that in others. And a great team, everybody shines in one way or another, in one piece of the process or another. And I come across people often who will suggest that, well, I don't work well in a team because I'm an introvert. And listeners, let me tell you, introverts everywhere, you are essential to the process and you can be an introvert. You can be a quiet person. You can be a shy person at the table. And with a good process, with a good team process, you will be heard and you will be expected to participate and contribute. And it starts at the very beginning, I think, with setting those goals and the parameters of the project, right? So establishing those solid relationships with the client, being inclusive, as you mentioned, of all stakeholders, everybody at the table from the get-go is vital. And I just can't emphasize this enough. Abby, I would love to hear about some of your experiences recently during our COVID years and how has the collaborative team process changed as a result of being in Zoom meetings and things being handled remotely more? So the loudest voices often dominate on Zoom. So you really need to make sure everyone's included. And I encourage people to turn your cameras on. 
seeing each other is really incredibly important, especially when your team's remote. It's really important to provide a platform for everybody to be able to contribute, not just the usual suspects. And it's also the same if someone says, I have an idea, it's probably bad, that's self-deprecating. Oh, never start a sentence with, I'm sorry, and never start a statement, right, or a suggestion with, this is probably absolute rubbish. No, 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 no. There's zero bad ideas, no, N-O bad ideas, and there's no dumb questions. Trust me, I've asked them all. Uh, it can't count the number of times someone suggests a left of field idea that spurs someone else's imagination. That's what I've noticed. Somebody will say something, it seems a little sort of obtuse, and then somebody else is like, oh my goodness, and they've made a connection. And then you start ideating together. So you have to have patience with ideas. The aim isn't to get to the idea fast. The aim is to have ideas and germinate and enjoy the process. Well, how does diversity in a team play into that? You know, everybody has a different perspective and a different point of view, which is why it's really important to have diversity on your team. So not only diversity in terms of background, ethnicity, religion and gender, but also of the jobs they do. What role you have on the project really contributes to what ideas are brought to the table. And through collaboration of multiple disciplines, we really can create something truly fantastic because our AV team, as we're ideating something, will say, oh, you know what, you can do that. That's been done before. But we were wondering if you wanted to project it this way or do this with it, or wouldn't this be interesting? And suddenly you have an idea that is owned by everybody. It's imaginative, it's creative, it's new. So I really think diversity all around is hugely important, especially when we're working on our projects. It's great that there's an ideal out there. And I wish I could say that, you know, everybody has that kind of experience. But over the years, I've kept a running list. This is what I do in my spare time. I keep running lists of stuff that doesn't go right. So here's a quick list. Number one, no one is clear about who gets to make decisions and it ends up being the loudest voice in the room or the Zoom. So we're talking about the lack of clear roles, and that can kill any team process right from the get-go. Here's another one. There isn't a real balance of contributions from everyone in the room. So that's a lack of an inclusive process. And Abby, that's what you were just giving this great, robust example of. Here's another war story. Boy, you've never experienced this. Coworkers are emotional, unpredictable, and lack trust. So having guidelines for how we're going to respect each other, they need to be established. And oftentimes, they're not. And here's the last one. I hear this a lot from folks in industry, that during a collaborative team process, they can actually feel alone. They can feel separated out. And we have the responsibility for ourselves to step up and to insert ourselves in the process. And at the same time, if the process is not truly collaborative, you're going to have people who are just pushed to the outskirts and that can kill. You mentioned a lot of things. That was the short list, everybody. Well, when you have a new team, you're, you're right. It's so important to explain roles and responsibilities to the whole group so everyone is clear who has the final say. Because that somebody at the end of the day has to have the final say. And since COVID, being remote makes it very easy for people to not participate or multitask. It's very hard to focus on a call when you don't have your camera on. Again, my pet peeve. Another reason I ask everyone to turn their cameras on is because, you know, I'm a victim of this. When your camera's off, 
You can be on Slack, you can be on your phone, you can be shooting off an email. But if my camera is on and I know people are looking at me, then I actually have to pay attention. So sometimes the reason someone isn't contributing is that the call is sort of overstaffed and some people have nothing to contribute. So making sure the people that need to be on the Zoom, for example, are the people that are on it is very important. I've been in meetings where it's just like tons and tons of people and some of them don't know why they're there. I don't know why they're there. So you have to make sure that people have a purpose. They know their purpose. We all know their purpose. That's another key. I think it's a common error. You know, the more the merrier. I don't think I believe in that. I couldn't agree more that communication over Zoom is so tricky. I think that things work so much better when we can allow for nuance. And I've got so many thoughts about communication. So, you know, settle in, folks, get comfortable. Let's talk about things that sometimes can be considered overkill. Meeting notes. How often does somebody come up to you after a meeting and they've either completely forgotten what was discussed or they're confused about what was discussed? How often do we just simply need to have detailed meeting notes that are then distributed to a team and that these always will have action items? What an incredible difference as well for people feeling included when they are a part of the resultant notes, and if nothing else, the action items. Again, clear roles, clear responsibilities. Abby, how does this work in your experience? Yes, completely agree. Action items from a top-line perspective, which say what was decided, what needs to be done, by who, is imperative. Otherwise, project management breaks down and things start to fall through the cracks. I am often surprised after a meeting when a group has all listened to the same thing and come away with very different conclusions. So these short recaps really help at least flag any differences that are interpreted in a meeting. Make your notes simple, quick and really easy to understand. This sounds straightforward, but people also misinterpret notes. So think about what you're writing. So let's talk about the E word. Let's talk about egos. How does a creative ego help the team process? Creative egos are good, right? I don't think you could aspire to create without one. But there is a real difference between a healthy ego, which allows me to genuinely appreciate my strengths and accept my imperfections, and an unhealthy ego, which will tell you to stick to what's comfortable, avoid uncertainty. It makes you have unrealistic expectations of yourself and then your team. So an unhealthy ego is sort of rooted in fear, anxiety, and often results in a designer who is reactive, defensive, or easily triggered. Can you tell that I've worked with some people with unhealthy egos? (laughs) So I've worked with designers who personalize what others say and see everything as a criticism, or they feel the opposite, a sense of entitlement or grandiosity, and they're shocked when someone discusses their work and its effectiveness. So when I say, Abby, you know, X, Y, and Z person is going to be in your creative team and you know this individual and this individual has what you would consider to be a healthy ego. You're really excited because they've got a healthy ego. What is that person doing? So when when we're talking, when they're showing us their work, when we're workshopping together, they are open to criticism. So I ask them why they did this. What was their purpose? What were they trying to achieve? What does this communicate? And then they can defend their design decisions. And you have a very constructive conversation. It's not just what I think. It's not my role to insist upon them what I think. My job is to have them question what they've made in terms of the client's mission, the mission of the museum, the design mission, 
is it aligning with those points? Right. Well, with the goals with of the, the goals. project. Yeah. And this is another thing that I find fascinating. When a project does not have a very clearly articulated audience, and when a project does not have clearly, clearly defined and even differentiated sets of goals, at the end of the day, any kind of a conflict or a challenge or a debate or whatever oftentimes can be resolved not everybody might be pleased, but at the end of the day, it's about the audience, right? And it's about why are we here and what are we what are we aiming to do? And I think that's key about a healthy ego. It's not about the designer. It's about who we're designing for. And the flip side, like an unhealthy ego, the designer tries to defend everything they've done. They're not listening. They're not hearing you. You know, you get a very defensive, well, you know, that wasn't what I focused on. It's like, okay, that's cool. But I think maybe in the next iteration, you want to think about you know, that or you want to think about ADA compliance or children or whatever the issue is with the design. And so making sure that it is somebody who is open-minded, that's what I mean when I say they're not defined by their design. And so too many people define their success on if everybody's going, bravo, we love it. Nobody's ever said that. (laughs) That's what I experience all the time. I don't know what your problem is, Abby, but, you know, I think that in in part of this, I'm sort of feeling at this moment a, a number of designer listeners going, well, and then there's the client who can be a little bit difficult, or it can be upper administration who can be a little bit difficult, or project leadership can be a little bit difficult. And I will say this, if you're in a situation where you're kind of in a lower station, if you will, within the sort of hierarchy of the project, and you are having to respond to or not respond to somebody who's in a position of greater authority than you, and there's a conflict or a mistake has been made, let's talk about having the very difficult conversations that nobody wants to have to have. But in order to move forward or fix a mistake or address a problem, we have to approach somebody else and kind of put it out there. Well, you know, my mom brought me up really well. Honesty is the best policy. And when you see a mistake, you let everybody know immediately. I have never had a problem with anybody telling me they've made a mistake. I've had a problem when somebody's tried to hide a mistake. It always just goes down the rabbit hole and it gets worse and worse and worse and inevitably always gets found out. So if I see that I've made a mistake or on behalf of my team, so one of my teams made a mistake, I explain the mistake and I always present the solution. And I've found that clients are always really forgiving. They're like, okay, great. They know you're human. They know they're human. And then you just got to fix that mistake ASAP. <laughs> but they're never fun conversations, especially the awkward conversations I have to have with team members. Because you have a personal relationship with everybody. You know, you know where their heart is. You know, they care about what they're doing. But I realize that some of these conversations are necessary. And I think the same thing applies certainly if you are not the you know owner of the company, but you have to kind of have that conversation up. Or very often, if you are the firm or the project manager, the representative of the project, and you have to have that conversation with a client. So I'm going to share a tried and true teamwork tidbit. How's that for alliteration? And I promise you, it really works. And it's a series of steps. And you've got a conflict Create that moment, as horrible as it might be. Schedule that moment. Ask your colleague, your partner, whomever it is, to describe to you what's on their mind. And you're going to actively listen and try to be very present in a state of mind. It is so hard to actively listen. So here's how you can make sure you do it. You're going to pause. When you are in this particular dynamic, give it wait time. Take two beats. 
before you then paraphrase, okay, here's what I heard you say. Okay, so on and so on and so forth. What you're doing, this is so important. You're slowing down and you're letting the colleague or the other individual know that you heard them. Sometimes that moment can even just be enough. You're making sure that you're not operating on your own assumptions and that check-in makes an incredible difference. At the end of the day, you've all got a shared mutual purpose. And that's ultimately what this is about, is you go through this process so that you can get to the, okay, we've addressed what happened, we've clarified what happened, we've heard each other, and we have accepted feelings. Mostly, we have clarified what it is that now needs to happen. So getting to that, that's your end point. That's your end goal. So, Brenda, a job done well. The client's overjoyed. and <laughs> Of course. Head of the project gets all the praise. This is natural sometimes because that's the person maybe who's been working 24-7 with the clients, the point person, the conduit of most things. But how do you make sure that everyone feels that praise and appreciation throughout the team? Oh, you give it. If you're a team leader, give appreciations. Say thank you. It makes a difference. I'm always shocked when I hear, well, I shouldn't have to say thank you because you're doing your job and I'm not going to say thank you for your job. Yes, folks, if you haven't experienced this, there are indeed actually human beings out there in the world who say things like that. I think that giving a thank you to folks at the end of any given workday as you're saying goodnight or goodbye or good morning or whatever it might be, say thank you. It really does go a, a long way and appreciations need to be an everyday thing. Even you're, you just had a rough conversation with somebody, right? Say thank you. Say, look, I am, you know, this was a really rough moment that you and I just have, but I want to let you know, I appreciate you bringing this to my attention. And certainly when the team does something great, the project lead does get all of the praise. Project leads follow up and not just with a verbal appreciation to everybody on the team, but write it down, put it in an email to the entire team and copy higher ups, copy in the client copy in whomever it is that is, frankly, in the highest positions of authority so that it is well recorded and known that the team, that everybody with their feet on the ground did a fantastic job. What that does is obviously it should hopefully engender really good feelings among the team, create unity, really help that shared purpose. But what it also does is it models behavior and you will see this. You will see team members giving appreciations to each other and you will see clients and you will see upper admin, whomever it is that's kind of on the on the upper tiers of a project, you will see them offering appreciations as well. And I think, you know, saying, hey, thanks, everybody is important. But I try to speak to individuals and it can be for small things, things that, you know, they think you didn't notice they did. Taking a moment to just thank them. Yeah. And do it up as well. I mean, tell a client, I appreciate how much you brought to the table right now. And I want to let you know, you were so clear, so descriptive. I understand where you're coming from. And I just want to appreciate you because I know that you really listened. Always, always give appreciations up and know that is not, you know, being a, a goody two shoes or trying to be a suck up, if you will, or anything like that. Give genuine appreciations that are descriptive, even to folks who are above you. 
Yeah, because when a client's done a great job for you, they've laid something out, written something that's helped us do a good job. I want them to know this is great. This is exactly the kind of thing we need. Thank you so much for helping us. Because again, we're all in the trenches together. I think about teamwork as I played a lot of sport growing up, a lot of team sports. I love team sports. You very quickly realize that why you need a team around you to succeed, you know, it's not Say it, it's, ba- it's basketball. Abby is actually <laughs> seven foot three. For those of you who have not met her in person, she's a dynamo. Very bouncy. Dynamo. Jump very high. Woof. Oh my God, absolutely not. So um, being in a, being, playing sports, I think was great for me because you realize the different positions, the different skills everybody has, and that it all has to come together for success. And that's how I think about our teams. Everybody brings something to the table, which is really important. And without it, we can't have success. Abby, let's talk about something that is really part of your wheelhouse, which is making film. There's so many similarities. There's so much that is comparable between the process of creating a film and working in experience design in terms of processes, protocols, the structures of teams, the roles, the responsibilities. Tell me about what a great creative team process looks like in filmmaking that you think would really inform folks in our industry. That's that's a fantastic question. There is a lot of analogies with filmmaking experience design. You've got the team that write the script and often now it's a team. And then you have the director who really is the creative vision. That's usually our equivalent of a creative director or the lead creative on a project. And then you have everybody else under that. That can be the actors that bring it to life, but without the DP to shoot it and the way that the camera moves and how that tells the story and the lighting and the way that tells the story, exactly like in design. You have sound, just as important in exhibitions. You have the sound team and you have people that edit the story. When you're telling a story in a museum, like in a film, Information and emotion has to ebb and flow. There has to be those moments of reflection. So when you're talking about moment of reflection, are you talking about within the designed experience or are you talking about as a part of the team process? Because I'm listening to this and I know you're talking about product, but part of what I'm thinking is how much this, I think, also applies to a great creative team process. A great team process is one that has ebbs and flows And it has moments of intense productivity, the brainstorming, the ideation. You need to have a lot of energy. You need to have a lot of openness. You need to basically make a giant mess, a wonderful, beautiful, creative mess. And then you need to have moments of pause, moments of reflection, moments of review. You know, when we're working on projects that can take anywhere from two, three, four, five and counting years Mm -hmm. to complete, you have turnover of staff. And then you have sometimes people who are on them, you know, they get married, they have babies, they get divorced, like a lot of things happen. So you are right. It's making sure to celebrate the stages and have those moments of rest and bring the team together because otherwise everything just blurs and then everybody burns out. You absolutely, I think, have to build in a moment's reflection for the team to then look at the work that is sitting in front of them before moving forward. And I don't care if it's, you know, one hour in one day, but let's talk about what we just did in that great, crazy outpouring of product, whatever the phase is. How completely insane is that, Abby, from your perspective? The sad thing is I think it's absolutely not insane at all. I think it's much needed. I think the insanity is in not pausing and it's hard to pause. It's really hard to pause. Because once you've accomplished something, human nature is to 
we accept that immediately and we move on to the next challenge. So it's almost about like going against yourself and saying, no, we all need to pause. But I think the key is that it can be an hour. Sure, right? sure. Very quick, brief. You have to schedule it. It's got to go in and you just look back and reflect on what you've accomplished. And add in some appreciations. Mm-hmm. It's like a rap party. That's how I think about it. On a film <laughs> set, you finish, you finish, you have a little rap party before you go into the next sure. year of editing, right? So it's taking that little rap moment. I think it's incredibly important and you should write a book on it. I don't think we do it enough. I think we should rename today's podcast, not There's No Iron Team, but Hit Pause. Hit Pause. I like that very much. So Brenda, let's move on to our next segment, Tech Talk, where we look at any advances or trends in technology that are happening that may have a use in or in creating an experience. Today, we're going to talk about your favorite subject, AI. AI. (laughs) (laughs) Specifically, we're going to talk about collaborating with AI because it's happening in a more interesting way (laughs) every single day. The last month, we've been collaborating with AI on a project and it sort of was initially working with us and kind of spitting out these random images. And it wasn't really working and it wasn't easy to understand. I mean, if it was some sort of wacky high art, maybe it was really cool. But for what we were trying to do, which was collaborate and design with AI, it wasn't really working. Can I ask a question on behalf of listeners who, like me, may not be up on the absolute latest and greatest? Can you give us just a quick definition of, as you're using it, what do you mean by artificial intelligence? Basically, in the context of what we're talking about, we are inputting information and the artificial intelligence is taking what we've inputted and all its storage of, let's say, for example, images, if we're talking about collaborating on an image, it's millions and millions and billions of images in its library and taking our direction, for want of a better word, or our words, and sending us back a composited image, an image that reflects what we input. What is it that is just really getting you all so excited about this new tool? I think it's how quickly it's learning. We're hoping soon that it'll be at a stage where we'll be able to work with AI to design with us. So we don't draw anymore. You won't need to draw. You'll have to be able to explain what you want and use words. And so it's words that produce images. So it's a very different way of working. How is this impacting your process? Will it help your creativity? Will it bring ideas to the table that, you know, a human being sitting at the table just wouldn't have thought of? I think that as long as you have a focus on an end goal of what you're trying to do and a problem you're trying to solve, it's going to be really helpful. I think right now we're just working to start to be able to collaborate in a meaningful way with AI and to get results that are not too left field. There is a moment when you create that you don't know what you're creating. It's that inspiration. We all iterate. And so potentially with AI, maybe there's some new outcomes. It's unique. Yeah. Who would you recommend work with AI or use AI as a tool? I think our industry needs to lead and I think we need to embrace technology and everybody should have an R&D wing and be willing to spend time and money and efforts in finding out how new tools, new technology can help us tell our stories. I don't think that we should be slaves to technology, but I think we should be aware of how they 
help us tell stories and also creatively think about how to tell stories in a new way. I mean, not just take the tools and serve them up. Oh yeah, we can use it. How can we immerse people with this technology in ways I've never been immersed before? And that's on us. We, in our own industry, need to have this appetite and this conversation around technology, around storytelling, around design, around curation. We need to start having a voice. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Do you think the future will be you sitting with your students collaborating with AI? I mean, the answer is yes, we will be working with AI. Colleges and universities that engage in design and in specialized design like ours certainly will be increasingly engaging with AI. What that looks like, I'm not really sure, but I think that a big part of it involves engagement with companies such as yours and being able to work with, as you were saying, you know, uh, work with companies and work with different institutions that have R&D as a part of their modus operandi and that are experimenting with AI and playing with latest technologies. One other thing I want to note is there's already companies that could take our podcast in English and translate it with the same intonation and the same tone Mm -hmm. into different languages around the world. So I see AI as nothing to be scared of. And I think that it will enable us to create new and interesting things. And I think that it will open up the world and make it a, a closer place. Like any technology, as as long as our visitors are still driving their experience and as long as it is a very human-centered design, then we're doing the right thing. Thank you so much, Brenda. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, listeners. Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp. Please tune in next week for another conversation. Thank you all for listening.